Part 1 of An Excursion to the Lakes in Westmoreland and Cumberland, August 1773, by William Hutchinson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From Bowes to Appleby Whenever I have read the descriptions given by travellers of foreign countries, in which their beauties and antiquities were lavishly praised, I have always regretted a neglect which has long attended the delightful scenes at home. The monuments of antiquity dispersed over this island are many and various. Some of them arose in the remotest ages and point out to us the revolutions and history of our own kingdom, a degree of knowledge which ought to stand first in importance with every Englishman. These sentiments gave rise to a summer's excursion the pleasures of which I have endeavoured to communicate to the reader in the following pages. The first requisites for a pleasure jaunt are companions of suitable taste and curiosity, and conveniences for the journey. They increase every enjoyment, and make every scene which presents itself more agreeable. These were not wanting. Thus circumstanced, we were conducted to Bowes in Yorkshire, to which place I shall first attempt engaging the attention of the reader. Bowes is of great antiquity, in which is all its merit. The country around it is meanly cultivated, its habitations are melancholy, and what alone claims the attention of a traveller is the ruin of a castle, supposed by some to have been of Roman construction, but by others to be the Turris de Arquebus, built by Allen, first Earl of Richmond, in the Conqueror's time. It is situated on the old Roman way, which leads from Catherick, or the ancient cataractonium. The castle is 53 feet high, is built of hewn stone of excellent workmanship, forming a square of equal sides of 81 feet each. The windows are irregular, and the walls, which are cemented with lime mixed with small flints, are near 5 feet in thickness. It is now much defaced, the outward casing having been stripped off in many places. Within, it appears to have been divided into several apartments, one of the lower divisions of which was supported by a central pillar, from whence a roof of arches has arisen, the groin still projecting from the walls. This castle is situated on the brink of a hill, declining swiftly to the southward, at whose foot runs the river Greta. It is surrounded with a deep ditch on the south side of which is a plain or platform, apparently calculated for the use of the castle. On the eastern point of this platform, we were shown the site and remains of a bath, with its aqueduct, which are now totally in ruins, and grown over with weeds and brambles. On a late enclosure of some common lands belonging to Bowes, an ancient aqueduct was discovered, which had conveyed the water from a place called Levar, or Levy Pool, near two miles distant from the castle, which was sufficient at once to supply the garrison with fresh water, and also the baths. A few scanty meadows border the river Greta, and cultivation seems to awake in ignorance over the adjoining lands, where the ploughshare begins to make the traces of industry on the skirts of the desert. Another occasion, besides what is mentioned by Camden, may have given the modern name of Bowes, as this place was granted by William the Conqueror to one of his attendant adventurers. The ancient monuments, said by Camden to be in the church of Bowes, are not now to be discovered. 
neither are there any other antiquities there which can afford any light to the history of the place. From Bowes proceeding towards Westmoreland, we were respited from the sad scene of barrenness to which we were obliged to pass by some infant enclosures and attempts towards cultivation. The climate, the dreary vicinage of mountains and the inclement skies seemed to deny industry her natural rewards. At length Spittle presents its solitary edifice to the view, behind which Stainmore arises, whose heights receive the burthen of both eastern and western storms. As we advanced, a dreary prospect was extended to the eye. The hills are clothed in heath, and all around is a scene of barrenness and deformity. The lower grounds are rent with torrents, which descend impetuously from the steeps in winter, and chasms which are harrowed on the sides of the hills yawn with ragged rocks or black and rotten earth here and there some scattered plots of grass variegate the prospect where a few sheep find pasturage and now and then a little rill is seen in the deep dell which as it flows with disconsolate meanderings is tinged with the sable soil through which it passes no habitation for mankind appears on either side but all is wilderness and horrid waste over which the wearied eye travels with anxiety. At the door of the turnpike house on Stainmore stands a cylindrical stone, which seems to have been a Roman guide-post, but the inscription is so obliterated that it cannot now be made out. When we approach Roy Cross, mentioned by Camden, which is now the boundary stone dividing Yorkshire from Westmoreland, we perceived it stood within the remains of a large entrenchment, defended by banks of earth ten paces wide, through which the present turnpike road now passes. Its form is an oblong square, extending from north to south with two openings on every side of the square, immediately opposite to each other, defended by a mound of earth placed right in front of each pass, now rising from the plain about five perpendicular feet, which is near the height of the entrenchment in its highest part. The eastern side is 270 paces in length, the openings on the side are ten paces wide. The moles which defend the same are thirty-six paces in circumference, and stand ten paces from the outward edge of the entrenchment. The ascent of the adjoining ground on this side is gradual for near half a mile. The northern end is two hundred and forty-nine paces in length, with two openings therein, defended by moles of earth, similar to those on the eastern quarter, and as the ground here is flat for a considerable distance, so this part of the entrenchment was by nature rendered inaccessible from the north by a deep morass. The western side is similar to those before described, being 278 paces in length, standing on a swift descent which falls without intermission for half a mile or upwards. The southern end is in length, 181 paces, has its openings and moles as before described, but stands on the brink of a precipice of considerable height. On the highest ground within the entrenchment is a large mound of earth of a square figure arising from the plain near three perpendicular feet and in circumference 53 paces. We have no account of this entrenchment in history and are left to conjecture to what people it might belong. As it lies on the Roman road it strikes one with an apprehension that it was of Roman original but the singularity of the passes and mounds which guard them do not correspond with their usual mode of fortifying a camp, though the interior mound may well be esteemed the Praetorium. From the conflicts between the Northern English and the Normans after the conquest, 
and preceding William ceding Cumberland to the Scots, this place may be conceived to have been a camp of one of those powers. As we travelled from hence for several miles, all around was one continued scene of melancholy, the hills increasing in height, the valleys deepening and growing more desolate, the wind sounded among the rocks, whilst a heavy vapour in some parts clouded their summits. In others, driving rain was seen streaming along the dells, and shrouding their gloomy recesses. The wearied mind of the traveller endeavours to evade these objects, and please itself with the fancied images of verdant plains, of streams and happy groves, to which we were approaching. Whilst we were thus engaged, unexpectedly the scene opened, and from such a horrid wild gave us a prospect as delightful as the other was disgusting. Over a rugged and rocky foreground we looked upon Stainmore Dale in front. Her verdant meadows cheered the eye, her sweet sequestered cottages, her grassy plains and little shades of sycamores, seemed enchanting, as their beauties were enhanced by the deformity from which they had escaped. On the right hand a mountain arises, immersing its grey head and naked browing clouds. The sides are barren rocks, in whose chinks here and there a few shrubs are seen clinging, and cast a tint of green to variegate the storm-bleached precipice. On a wild and forlorn situation, in an opening on the side of a mountain, Helbeck Hall is discovered, covered with trees. The place seems calculated for discontent, and hidden from all that is cheerful in the world, is befitted to a mind of disappointment and despair. All its prospect is barrenness. The voice of waterfalls, of breezes mourning in the branches of the copse, or hissing in the fissures of the rock, its music. Day excluding shadows make it gloomy, and overhanging vapours damp and dreary. Yet Helbeck has its beauties. It contrasts with the vale beneath, where the far outstretching plain reaches to the very bounds of Cumberland, whose lofty mountains were seen from our then station tinged with blue vapours, and mixing their summits with the sky. In the foreground lays Bruff, whose ancient castle, formerly the seat of Pembrokes, affords a noble object, around which rich meadows dressed in the brightest green and fresh verdure after mowing, plots of ripening corn, sparkling sheets of water seen through the trees which deck their margins, the windings of each brook, little groves of ash and sycamore, fantastically dispersed and intermixed with villages and cots, form the beauties of the vale, on this hand extending towards Kirby Stephen, on that to Dufton, and in front as far as Penrith Beacon. As we begun to descend the hill towards Bruff, and leave Stainmore's desert, we passed near an ancient Roman fortification called Maiden Castle. The Roman road has led immediately through it. It forms a square, and has been built of stone, each side of this square is forty paces in length, and is defended by outworks, the nearest being a small ditch with a breastwork of large stones set erect, and the outward one a ditch and mound of earth. This place has been of great strength in former times from its natural situation, commanding the pass from Bruff. The ascent on the side opposite to Bruff is very steep for upwards of a mile, to the south it is inaccessible by reason of the precipice on whose brink it stands, and towards the north the ground is everywhere rugged and mountainous. The night was spent at Bruff. Fatigue gives a relish beyond what the sons of ease can possibly experience in the midst of their luxury. 
beds of down are only conscious of anxiety and weariness to restless ambition and greatness the peasant breathing health from his labours sleeps emparadised on his bed of contentment and chaff bruff is now divided into two small mean towns the one called church bruff the other market bruff separated by a little brook which falls into the river eden husbandry is very little advanced here the management of grassland is the farmer's whole excellence the meadows being kept in good order and very wealthy the inhabitants are ignorant of men and manners but subtle and crafty on parties of pleasure time should never be limited to ride post through a country is too much the custom of travellers by which they can reap no more than a general idea of it the speculative traveller is never confined to roads times or seasons but as the circumstances exciting his curiosity lay either to the right or left he pursues the objects of his attention without regard to hours or rules the pleasantness of the morning called us very early from bruff the dawn advanced with a deep calm the clouds broke from the hills and drew their grey veil from the face of morning revealing her in blushes all the valley lay wrapped in stillness care and industry had not departed from their night's recesses the ear was hushed and all around seemed to be the region of tranquillity ere it was long various sounds grew on the sense and the living landscape gave us new pleasures where the busy cottagers were all abroad in the several occupations of the field as we pursued our journey at an opening of the road to the left we viewed the ruins of bruff castle in former times this was a formidable fortress and said to be of roman construction the building to the eastern side is semicircular and seems to be of modern architecture but to the west there remains a noble tower apparently of great antiquity and built in the form and style of other roman edifices in the north of england the whole castle stands on a very considerable eminence arising swiftly from the plain and by its outworks shows it to have been a place of great strength in the beginning of the last century it was repaired by the countess of pembroke who made it her residence this appeared to be an inscription that lately stood over the south entrance which also described that it had suffered by fire and laid in ruins above a century preceding the stone which contained this inscription some few years ago fell down and was destroyed as the sun advanced he gave various beauties to the scene the beams streaming through the divisions in the mountains showed us their due perspective and striped the plain with gold the lights falling behind the castle presented all its parts perfectly to us through the broken windows distant objects were discovered the front ground laid in the shadows on the left the prospect was shut in by a range of craggy mountains on whose steeps shrubs and trees were scattered to the right a fertile plain was extended surmounted by distant hills over their summits the retiring vapours as they fled the valley dragged their watery skirts and gave a solemn gloom to that part of the scene behind the building the lofty promontory of wilbore fell lifted its brow tinged with an azure hue and terminated the view half mankind know nothing of the beauties of nature and waste in indolence and sleep the glorious scene which advancing morning presents as we passed on the varied prospect kept attention exerted at the distance of a mile from bruff the village of walkup to the left affords an agreeable view walkup hall shrouded with a rich wood of sycamores overtops the village 
the verdure of the meadows with some extensive fields of yellow corn contrasted by the hills of pasture grounds which lay on the southern side brown with summer heat and tufted with brushwood gave a pleasing variety whilst the morning beam breaking aslant upon the valley and glistening upon the brook with the blue tints of smoke that arose from the hamlets painted the rural scene we were furnished with ideas which still rendered the prospect more pleasing as they reminded us of the social spirit of the owner of walkup in whose life hospitality and benevolence are truly characterized the valley now growing more extensive increased its varieties and pleased us with a new scene of advancing cultivation and husbandry the large tracts of ground which we passed along were lately common but are now dividing and forming into enclosures at the sixth milestone we stopped to admire the singularity of the view to the right where a range of mountains arising from the extensive plain over which we were travelling stretched to the westward and afforded a romantic and noble scene the nearest hills with rocky brows and barren cliffs raised their grey fronts above the brushwood which girted them in the midst whilst their feet in hasty slopes descended into the vale in pasturage further retiring from the eye the mountain called cross fell with a front of naked stones overtops all the adjoining hills being said to exceed the mountain of skiddaw one hundred and ten perpendicular feet in height further extending westward the chain of mountains lay in perspective till they died away upon the site and in azure hue seemed to mix with the sky whilst at the foot of this vast range of hills three small amounts of an exact conic form running parallel beautified the scene being covered with verdure to their crowns the nearest called dufton pike was shadowed by a passing cloud save only the summit of its cone which was touched by a beam that pointed it with gold the second pike was all enlightened and gave its verdure to the prospect as if mantled with velvet the third laid shadowed whilst all the range of hills behind were struck with the sunshine showing their cliffs their caverns and their dells in strange and grotesque variety and giving the three pikes a picturesque projection on the landscape as if nature delighted to charm the eye of man she at this time cast an accidental beauty over the scene the small clouds which chequered the sky as they passed along spread their flitting shadows on the distant mountains and seemed to marble them a beauty which i do not recollect has struck any painter and which has not been described even by the bold hand of the immortal poussin the most exquisite fancy of a painter could not have devised a more pleasing variety of light and shadow than what was cast upon this prospect appleby to which we now approached though placed on a very elevated situation was concealed from our view till we arrived within half a mile when from the hill which we had ascended it gave us an agreeable surprise on the brink of a lofty eminence fronting towards the east at whose foot runs the river eden the castle presented itself the steep on whose brow this noble edifice is erected is richly clothed with wood save only where a rugged cliff of a red hue breaks through the trees and gives an agreeable variety to the landscape the front of the castle which presented itself is irregular and antique but loses great share of its beauty by the joints of the building being whitened and bedaubed with lime over this front the top of a fine square tower is discovered whose corners arise in turrets 
the landscape to the left is richly wooded to the right it is divided by hanging gardens which adjoin to the town overtopped with the dwellings the pavilions belonging to the house of john robinson esq with the parterres and sloping plots of grass ground modernize a scene which condemns all factitiousness of taste and by the simplicity and elegance nature presents to us on the adjoining lands reproves the distortions which she receives from dull right lines and angles but whilst i censure fashion i revere the owner of the mansion whose excellences are too eminent to want the traveller's applause as we approached the bridge and cast our eyes up the valley we were delighted with the happy assemblage of woods and meadows which form the little vale where the eden flows through the thronging branches the water was seen in many places reflecting a tremulous beam and sparkling in the sun's rays over the valley red cliffs and rocks on this hand appear projecting through the trees on that is seen the lofty front of the castle the prospect from the terrace which is under the eastern front of the castle is very beautiful to the right the river eden forms a winding lake for the distance of half a mile whose banks are clothed with lofty hanging woods descending in a swift but regular sweep to the brink of the stream below us the water murmured over a weir where a mill added to the pleasing sounds on the left red cliffs and precipices arise perpendicular from the water over whose brows oaks and ashes hanging render their aspect more romantic by the solemn shade on the ground above the public road leading to appleby winds up the hill on whose sides some cottages are scattered whilst all behind mountains form the distant ground shadowed with clouds whilst we stayed here enjoying this sweet scene i could not forbear pointing out to my companion a little tenement which stood opposite to us near to the brink of the river where the fairest maid resides that graces eden's banks stately and tall she seems the lily of eden's garden while she is fair and meek as lilies too in her countenance beauty is graced with intelligence and in her behaviour innocence is mixed with politeness the garden grounds around appleby castle are without ornament and are calculated for use only on the western side detached from the rest of the edifice is a very lofty square tower which the people call caesar's tower and which from its form appears to be roman the corners form a projection of near a foot from the plane of each front and rise above the rest of the building in square turrets now covered with lead the remaining part of the top being embrasured there are two small windows on each front near the middle of the building parallel to each other this tower is defended by an outward wall forming a kind of crescent at the distance of about twelve paces now remaining near twenty feet in height strongly sustained on the outside by buttresses erected on an eminence thirty paces in ascent and defended by a deep ditch without the quarter fronting to the castle lies open to the area which is enclosed by a wall continuing from the points of the crescent the great hall is worthy the observation of travellers there being enclosed in a case in the wainscot a fine piece of portrait painting of the pembroke family ornamented with their pedigree and historical notes of their lives and achievements a stranger is from thence conducted through an adjoining room where the ragged remains of embroidered furniture give you a most deplorable idea of decaying magnificence and the vanity of pride when the doors of a closet being suddenly thrown open 
you are startled from your reverie by the shaking of armour and the sight of a complete suit trembling in every joint this armour is preserved with great attention as having been worn by the late earl of westmoreland who has been a man of very small stature the arms are richly embossed and inlaid with gold in its ichnography this castle is not much unlike to the ruins of Bruff, the towers being detached from the main edifice and placed to the west appleby castle is one of the seats of the earl of thanet but of late years has been much neglected by the family lord thanet is hereditary sheriff of the county of westmoreland and is entitled to many noble privileges there some of which in this age of liberty and cultivation are rather oppressive his free chase in particular the great possessions of the countess of pembroke in this country came into the thanet family in the following manner john earl of thanet succeeded his mother margaret countess of thanet as baron of clifford westmoreland and vesey in the year sixteen seventy six and in the year sixteen seventy eight he also succeeded his cousin the lady aliathia sole daughter and heir of james earl of northampton by his first wife the lady isabella his mother's sister whereby he became possessed of the whole inheritance of his grandmother the countess of pembroke the town of appleby chiefly consists of one wide continued street hanging upon the swift decline of a hill in a direction north and south the castle terminating it on the summit the church at the foot the situation is delightful in the summer season but in the winter very cold the natural disadvantages of its site being increased by the great scarcity of coal to supply which want wood and peats are chiefly used as fuel the meadows and pasture grounds are beautiful but there is little tillage it having been a received opinion for ages past that grain would not ripen or come to perfection so near the moors and mountains from whence a continued moist vapour is borne into the valley which blights the corn in its blossom or prevents its filling or maturing but this absurdity is declining through experience which hath taught the inhabitants that the want of knowledge in agriculture was all the defect this is a very ancient borough and by prescription sends two members to parliament it is the county town but is not blessed with a situation for trade the markets are not populous the country adjoining by reason of its extensive wastes and uncultivated lands being thinly inhabited this is a corporation town and is governed by a mayor alderman and common council the late conflicts in political matters have enriched the inhabitants the contested elections for this borough having bestowed upon the burgage owners many thousands of pounds the place where the judges of assize sit in judgment on criminals is very antique and remarkable by the arms placed on one of the corner pillars it appears to have been erected by the pembroke family it is situate in the market-place fronting to the north is opened on the sides by a rude balustrade and in the front is supported by pillars so that it may be truly said the judge sits dispensing justice in the forum the buildings in this place are chiefly ancient some few modern houses of red free stone which have a remarkable fine effect are interspersed near the summit of the hill stands an obelisk a pillar of the ionic order arising on some few steps on the base of which is cut this remarkable inscription preserve your liberties maintain your rights it seems to be placed there as a public satire on the conduct of the burgage owners and to say hither and no further the conflagration of public virtue advanced 
as it had its origin in the contested elections it excites a smile of derision on the countenance of the traveller to whose mind it renews the odious ideas of the corruptions of this age in the midst of the town to the disgrace of the corporation stands a filthy slaughter-house and shambles there is a school amply endowed belonging to this place before the door of the schoolhouse some roman altars are placed among these antiquities one reginald bainbrig has given a memorial of his folly to posterity by some inscriptions in antique characters to celebrate his own memory in which at least his latin inelegance qui docuit hic might have been spared End of part one. Recorded at Bowes Castle, on Stainmore, at Brough Castle, and at Appleby by the River Eden.